there was a guy who was an Austrian police officer when World War II broke out. And he lived in Austria, Austrian police officer. Of course, he lives in Austria. War broke out, and this Austrian police officer joined the Nazis. He went through the war, he survived the war, and after the war, World War II, became a uh, police chief there in Austria. And at that point, uh, he met a young woman and married her, and they had some kids. And this guy was a very, not the nicest of guys, let's say it that way. Um, I mean, coming from his background, um, being, being a Nazi, he was very strict, very hard, uh, didn't care much about other people, even his own children. Um, but one of the kids who grew up in that house didn't want to live the same life that his father lived, wanted to do some things different in his life, wanted to end up in a different place that his father had ended up. Um, and the, the way he sought to do that uh, was in the habits that he wanted to pursue, his uh, 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 lifestyle, his um, career, ultimately. So when this young man was about 15 years old, he made a decision to make several small intentional changes so that he wouldn't end up like his father. And in the process of doing that, he developed other habits. He developed some habits uh, about the food he ate and the exercise that he did. And he began to really pour himself into that food he ate and the exercise he was doing. Um, began to experiment. If he exercised, did this workout in the morning and ate food beforehand, how would his body respond? If he worked out after lunch and ate food afterwards, how would his body respond? And uh, with different kinds of food, different times of day, he experimented and changed things up. So that by the time he was 20, uh, this young man became Mr. Universe bodybuilding competition. His name was Arnold Schwarzenegger. He went on to be Mr. Olympia seven times, all from little small intentional changes that he made in his life because he didn't want to be the same as what came before him. He wanted to be better. He wanted to be different. Small, meaningful decisions can have massive impact in our lives and in the lives of other people down the road which we're going to see today in Matthew chapter 5. So turn to Matthew chapter 5 if you have a Bible with you. If you're using a Bible in the pew rack there in front of you, it's on page 809. You can find it. Uh, And if you don't have a Bible, please take that Bible home. That is your Bible. You can have it. You can keep it. Uh, You you don't feel like you're you're stealing from the church. Uh, The pastor's telling you it's yours. You can keep it. Uh, Take it with you. Matthew chapter 5, we, are, we started last week looking at the Sermon on the Mount, which is the longest single teaching of Jesus in Scripture. It goes Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 6, and Matthew chapter 7, this massive teaching of Jesus. And he starts it off here at the beginning of Matthew chapter 5 with his introduction, giving these statements that all begin with the word uh, blessed, blessed. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They're they're poor in spirit. They need help. The only way to get help is from the kingdom of heaven. That will become their entire resource. And the resource of heaven is massive and eternal. Then he says, uh, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. 
I found that verse almost prophetic this week. <laughs> um, Jesus was saying, if, if you look in that passage, as we saw last week, that, that uh, I think it's verse 4. Yeah, blessed are those who mourn. Um, he says, they will be comforted. It, it is a passive comfort. It's not a comfort that they can get on their own. It's a comfort that they have to receive from someone outside of themselves. They have to bring their mourning, their grief to Jesus, and only then can they experience his comfort. And that doesn't mean that the mourning and the grief disappear. Because as anyone who has mourned and grieved knows, it's always there at some level. Scars, wounds, it still hurts, but it's different. It's different than it was before. But you have to bring it to Jesus because we can't do it on our own. We weren't designed to do it on our own. As Jesus said there in that passage, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. They will be comforted by him when we bring it to him. If we try to do it by ourselves, we'll be crushed by it. It will get the better of us. It will break us because we're not designed to work our way through it by ourselves. We're designed to need Jesus, and that's the only way through. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And then he introduces this, these next couple of verses that, that sort of go together. Starting in verse 5, Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now this is interesting, this, this particular verse, because Jesus is quoting from the Psalms in this one. Psalm 3711 says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. He's saying they, this is an important deal here, inheriting the earth, the, the meek, surrendering to the Lord. When we surrender to the Lord, the Lord will give the meek the earth, inherit the earth. When we surrender to the Lord, the Lord will give the meek something that the meek could not take for themselves because it's too great a thing. You know, there's been people throughout the history of the world who have tried to conquer the world but have not succeeded. Some have gotten close to conquering the known world way back when, but they weren't anywhere near conquering the entire world. But Jesus says, blessed are the meek for they will inherit inherit the earth, the whole thing. Not just a little bit, not just a piece of it, the whole thing. Something that, honestly, if you, if you really look at that verse, the meek, someone who is meek, would never even consider the possibility of the earth being theirs. Because part of being meek is humility. And so the meek would never go so far as to say, I am going to conquer the world. And so what this is saying is, blessed are the meek, they will inherit the earth. They will receive something they would never even consider possible for themselves because they would think it's too great a thing. But this is also a possible reference to Revelation chapter 21, the coming of the new heaven and new earth, receiving that as an inheritance, which that's what that passage says in Revelation. But what is exactly meekness? You know, we do often, whether voluntarily or involuntarily, associate meekness with weakness because they sound similar but they're nothing alike at all. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is restrained strength. It's restrained strength. It's the, it, Jesus is really the ultimate example of meekness. Jesus, who is the most powerful being that has ever existed, because Jesus is God, he restrained himself 
in order to come in human form and allow his own creation to kill him. Jesus was meek. Meekness is intentional self-restraint and self-denial. It's restraining yourself and denying yourself in order to surrender to someone better. God. It's restraining yourself, denying yourself in order to surrender to the Lord. You see, meekness, it, it, it's, it's, it's confident humility. And you may hear those words, confident humility. That's, that's oxymoronic. I mean, they don't go together. You can't be confident and humble. You have to be one or the other. But really, meekness is both of those things. It's confident not because of what we can do ourselves, not because we think of ourselves as, as great or awesome, but it's confident in what the Lord can do. Confident in our own personal value in the Lord. But confident humility is also being humble. It's not having a low view of ourselves, but having a high view of God. So we can be confidently humble because of God. Confident because of the Lord. Humble because of the Lord. Confidently humble because of the Lord. Meek because of the Lord. Let me give you a literal translation of that word meek, all right? It literally means gentle, humble, someone who does not insist on their own way. Someone who is not aggressive. You know anybody who's aggressive? Don't raise your hand. Don't point fingers. Don't elbow the person next to you. Meekness is gentle, humble, someone who doesn't insist on their own way, someone who is not aggressive. The meek do not insist on their own way. They, that the meek choose to follow the better way of the Lord. And that's what a disciple does. A disciple decides that God's way is more important. A meek, someone who is meek, a disciple, what Jesus is talking here in the whole Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, but particularly these first few verses of the blessed are, the Beatitudes, he's describing the life of a disciple. And so he says a disciple is someone who is meek. And so a disciple, a meek disciple, someone who is meek, decides that God's way is more important. More important than my own way. More important than my own plan. More important than my own opinion. More important than what I feel is my right to assert my opinion. Sometimes in a very aggressive manner. The Lord's way is more important than any of that. You see, when, when I decide in an aggressive fashion to assert my opinion... I'm not being meek. And honestly, by not being meek, I'm choosing not to be a disciple of Jesus in the moment. That doesn't mean we should never express our opinions. But if our opinion, it comes down to this, really. Do you value your opinion on a specific political issue more than you value the opportunity to share Jesus with somebody? Do you value your opinion on a sports team or whatever is in the news at the moment more than you value the opportunity to point somebody to Jesus? And what being meek is is saying, I need to restrain my strong desire to scream in the face of this moron and tell them the way it should be. Or do I value God's way? I need to restrain myself and say what is actually more important is the way of Jesus. Because I don't know if you've noticed this. Someone who gets all hot and bothered and angry and upset in the midst of that fit 
is not very likely to use their own spiritual gifts to point people to Jesus. Have you ever, have you ever been in the midst of a, of a heated disagreement with someone and then all of a sudden tried to express Jesus' love to them in the heat of that moment? I can't believe you would say that. Jesus loves you. Go to heaven. <laughs> it doesn't really work. <laughs> and that's not where our mind naturally goes. And so when a, a disciple decides that God's way is more important than any of that other stuff. And that means shouting ourselves down sometimes. Because I don't know if you've noticed this either. When we're trying to decide in our own mind how we should respond to a situation or what we should say in the middle of a moment, our own personal inner voice is very, very loud and often very, very wrong. It's almost as though our self, you know, like I said, meekness is denying self, restraining self. Our self, our own personal self is almost like a temper tantrum throwing toddler who will do anything to get his own way. Because we lie to ourselves all the time and try to convince ourselves that what we desire to do and have done is what needs to be done. We lie to ourselves and, and try to convince ourselves. We can convince ourselves of anything. We can convince ourselves that a certain action or certain habit or certain issue is justified when in the ways of God it's not really. We're trying to find a loophole in the love of God in order to justify what we want to do sometimes. And I'm right there with you. And then I feel God come to me and say, yeah, you're trying to get around. You're trying to do an end around when I want you to go up the middle. <laughs> Ultimately, you can't go around what God has. God's got a lot more coverage than you do. God can do whatever God wants to do. It's just a question of whether or not we want to participate in what God's doing and so we've got to give in to him we've got to decide that God's way is more important and if we decide that God's way is more important there will be some inevitable results of that and one of those is what Jesus says in the very next verse we will hunger and thirst for what verse 6 calls righteousness he says blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be satisfied satisfied Filled up, like Thanksgiving unbuttoning your pants, filled up, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now righteousness, the way the New Testament often uses this word, it, it's the, the way of the believer, the way of life for the believer, the actions that ultimately make God happy in the life of the believer. So the disciple of Jesus, which is what, remember the Sermon on the Mount, this first section, the introduction is all about the life of the believer, the, 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 or the life of the disciple. The disciple of Jesus is supposed to have a passionate and, and strong, enthusiastic desire to fulfill God's intention for our life. If we're hungering and thirsting after righteousness, righteousness being the, the way of the disciple, the things that make God happy, we're supposed to be pursuing that, uh, going after that, uh, uh, doing everything we can to get to that, the intention of God for the life of the believer. And the intention of God for the life of the believer, to get specific, is, is about uh, pouring into scripture, pouring into prayer, sharing the gospel, financial giving, serving in the church, praising God, small group involvement, how you spend your money. It's about what you watch on your TV, what you watch on your phone, 
how you talk about people, how you think about people, the way of life for the disciple of Jesus. Are you hungry for those type of things? Are you craving those type of things? It's, it's about having, as Tony Evans says, the right spiritual appetite in everything, in everything that we encounter, everything that we do. So ask yourself that question, what do I crave? Do you, do you crave more the add to cart button than you crave the opportunity to give to the Lord's church? Do you crave the newest show or video to watch more than scripture? Do you crave the newest and most damaging gossip more than a gospel opportunity? Now, obviously we're gonna say, no, absolutely not. We're in church, the answer is always Jesus. But if we were really to examine our habits and the things we've chosen to do, just say the last 24 hours, what do you crave? What you crave is what you do. I read a, I can't remember where I read this quote. Oh, it was Rick Warren. We believe all of the scripture that we are willing to do. Or another way to say it, we only believe the scripture that we're willing to do. And so if we're not willing to do it, we don't really believe it. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. Crave the way that God has for us. What you crave, hunger and thirst for, will fill you up one way or another. Because what you consume is what you, or, or you will consume what you crave. Ultimately, we will consume what we crave because the craving will get into us like an addiction and we will do everything we can to get at it. And if we crave it, we'll consume it. And if we crave poorly, what we crave will consume us. Paul gives us kind of a list of a good kind of craving. You know, like Jesus said, we just read it in Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied, they will be filled up. You know, and, and again, this is another deal. If you've ever craved something unhealthy, you're never satisfied. You always want more. You always want more. You may regret it for a little bit after, but then you want it again, and the craving comes back. There is no satisfaction. I can't get no satisfaction. When you crave poorly. But Paul gives us a list of how to crave properly. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if anything is worthy of praise, think about these things. And so again, if you were to take everything you thought about, let's just say the last 20, let's, let's, we could just say the last hour, but let's say the last 24 hours. How many of the things we thought about that we craved would fit in that list of eight things? Not even, we're not even talking fit into all of them, qualify for all eight things, but how many of the things that we thought about and ended up doing would fit into that list? True, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, praiseworthy. 
I don't, not a lot of my stuff. <laughs> I'm not going to give you a percentage. But Paul says, this is where our thoughts need to be. This is the litmus test that our thoughts need to pass before we allow them to continue in our minds. This is proper craving. This is proper spiritual nutrition. You know, far too often, what, what I end up doing, I mean, I'm just going to give you my, my, my own personal experience, is, is I, I feed on, on what, what I call emotional fast food instead of proper nutrition. If you eat fast food every single meal, it's going to damage your heart. It's going to damage your body. It's going to damage your mind. It's going to damage you, but you're going to crave it. And far too often, hate to admit it, I fall into the trap of substituting emotion for the things of the spirit. Is it, because we feel sometimes, I say we, I say I, sometimes feel certain things, say, oh, that's the spirit. I feel the spirit extra special when we sing that one song. And sometimes that is a spirit. Sometimes that's emotion. And the only way to know the difference is to get close to the Lord. Emotional fast food is a danger. I'm speaking from personal experience. It's a danger. When you rely on it for your own spiritual nutrition, rather than going to the source and finding truth. This is proper spiritual nutrition. Everything that was in that list, proper spiritual nutrition. When you, when you make proper spiritual nutritional decisions, everything changes in your life. And the struggle becomes, we read these things that Jesus is saying, the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and he starts saying, okay, we're, for, we're into this list of, of things that, that, that describe the life of the disciple, and I, only four things in, and it already seems very, very hard. <laughs> Being meek. Being, hungering, thirsting for righteousness, for the things of God, uh, uh, thinking about things that are, are, are true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable and excellent and praiseworthy, thinking, I mean, I mean, God, you know this mind of mine, you know my heart, and the, the habits that I have developed and the things that I think about, you know my cravings that led me to the, that, those things. This hungry and thirsting for righteousness business, Jesus, on, on number four, this is kind of a hard deal. I mean, how do I, how do I change what I crave? It's just too difficult. Sometimes the world is too painful, too hard to do this. It's like walking on a desert of Legos and finding no reprieve. But Paul gave us, this is not on the screen. The Lord gave me this just a little bit ago. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Very familiar passage. Paul, a man who we can look at his life throughout the book of Acts and read his letters in the rest of the New Testament and see he, if there was anybody outside of Jesus who we would say was spiritually mature and had it together, we'd say Paul. I mean, this man went through all kinds of mess. 
He loved his haters. He, he in prison, writing about joy, pouring his heart out to people who, you know, picked up rocks to stone him to death. But Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. A thorn in the flesh. Now, there's, there's lots of discussion about the thorn in the flesh. What is it? We don't know. It could be a physical ailment. It could be a temptation. It could be people who oppose him. It could be a personal grief. Whatever it is, it's a struggle for Paul. He says, I have this thing. He calls it a messenger of Satan. So he's saying it's not from God. It's a result of this fallen world that he's going through this experience. It's a pain that he's enduring. A pain that he's grieving, having. And he says, I pleaded with the Lord three times. Now, yeah, I've taught on this before, but that three times, it's not like three individual prayers that he prayed. The, the, the word in the original language is, it's three seasons of life. He dedicated long periods of time, three in specific Huge chunks of his life he dedicated to praying that God would get rid of this thing. Begged God to get rid of this thing. You ever beg God for something? Pleaded with God? Tried to make a deal with God? Paul says three times, three seasons of my life, I pleaded that God would fix it. That God would heal it. That God would make this thing stop. And what Paul says is, God said no. Verse 9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Because my grace is sufficient. My grace is enough. You don't need me to take it away. You don't need me to change it. You just need my grace. Now, we were singing about mercy a little bit ago. Mercy is not receiving something we do deserve. Grace is getting something we don't deserve. And so God tells Paul, my grace is enough. That's all you need because my power is perfect in weakness. He says, Paul, that that experience that you've had of, of feeling my power helping you persevere, that is perfect. That's all you need in this life is my power to get you through this. That doesn't mean you're never going to struggle. That doesn't mean it's not going to keep hurting. That doesn't mean the hurt is ever going to go away until Jesus comes. It just means you can have me now in perfection. In your weakness, when you feel weak, when you feel like there's no way through, when you feel like it's just bad thing on top of bad thing on top of bad thing, my power is made perfect in that weakness in the weakness of this fallen world, in the weakness of the ramifications of living in a broken world. My grace is sufficient. My grace is enough. And so look at what Paul, his response to getting this word from God. He says, therefore, 
I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. So for the sake of Christ then, I am content with weaknesses, with insults, with hardships, with persecutions, with calamities. The idea of calamities, it's like unspeakable difficulty. For when I am weak, then I am strong. He doesn't say I am strong in that the strength comes from me. That's what he's just been describing. He's strong because of God in him. And he's finding the power, the perfect power in his weakness. He's finding it in Christ. And so Paul said, God told him, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is enough for you. So the, what, it's almost beyond my comprehension. What Paul is saying is, I stopped praying that God would take it away. I can't wrap my head around that. Paul says, three specific seasons of life, I prayed that God would take this away, and he did not. I prayed that God would fix it, and he did not. But he said, I am with you in it. I am there with you in the pain, in the struggle. I am there with you, giving you grace, giving you power in your weakness. Because God will never, never, now it's a dangerous thing to say God will never do something or God will always do something, but God will never give you a life where you don't need him. Ever. Ever. And now you may say, well, man, I know I always need God, but my prayers tend to be like, trying to pray God out of my life. <laughs> pray that everything would be hunky-dory and fantastic. And I'm confessing, mine do. <laughs> when Paul is trying to be transparent here and say, my prayer really became, well, okay, God, help me to see your grace in my life. Help me to live in your power in my life. If this thing isn't going to go away, if this pain isn't going to go away, if the healing isn't going to come like I want it to come, then God, help me to see your grace and your perfect power in my life. Because if that's what that means, God, then like he said there, the last phrase in verse 10, then I'm going to be weak for the rest of my life. And God, honestly, if that means that your strength is in me, then so be it. And Paul gets to this point in writing this to the, these Christians in Corinth, and says, okay, your grace is sufficient. Your grace is enough. I will rest in your grace. And so we find ourselves, flipping back over to Matthew chapter 5, and, and we see him talking, Jesus talking about being blessed when we're poor in spirit, being blessed when, we're, when we mourn because we bring things to him, being blessed when we're meek because we're restraining ourselves, we inherit the earth, Revelation 21, being blessed when we hunger and thirst for righteousness and when we say, I, I, that is such a high standard, I'm not anywhere close to that. And God says, my grace is sufficient. My grace is enough. You can't do it on your own. You can't do it on your own. You're weak on your own. So rest in my grace. Rest in my perfect power and you will find your way through it. And you will find your way there. Rest in him. That's the only way we can find it. That's the only way we can get there. 
is pursuing what he would have us to pursue. Making small, intentional decisions because they have massive impact. Massive impact. You say, right now, I do feel weak. Maybe right now, you're not spending any time with the Lord every day. 30 seconds, 15 seconds when you ask God to bless your food or something. You say a quick prayer that your kid will be safe when you send them off or whatever. And that's all the time you're spending with the Lord. Well, don't go from that point to saying, okay, well then tomorrow I am going to spend three hours reading scripture and another three hours in prayer. It'll kill you, man. That's like not doing any exercise and say, okay, tomorrow I'm running a marathon. We'll find you on the side of Colin Ray. Like, you'll just be out there laying out. Start small. Bite off just a little bit at a time. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Don't try to swallow the whole thing at once. It'll get you. Little bit at a time. Little bit at a time. Build up your strength. Build up your perseverance. And get to the point of hungering and thirsting for righteousness. You see... Something that, that you figure out as you get older. Your tastes change over time. Sometimes there's some things that you don't, as a younger person, you don't have any desire to eat. It tastes terrible. But in your mind, when you start to think, okay, well, I know this is good for me, and you begin to eat it over and over and over. It, just, it doesn't happen with everything, I promise. But with some things, you begin to change your taste buds, that they crave that thing that they hated before, or they crave that thing they knew was good for them before, but they just didn't like it that much. Maybe it's peas or green beans or broccoli. The only way you would eat broccoli is if all the good stuff was cooked out of it and you just poured all kinds of Velveeta on top. But maybe your tastes have changed over time because your mind began to change your taste as you understood how good it was for you. Scripture is good for you. Faith is good for you. Prayer is good for you. Giving to the Lord is good for you. Serving the Lord is good for you. Small groups are good for you. Coming to church and assembling together, Hebrews chapter 10, it's good for you spiritually. It's proper spiritual nutrition that will change your life. It will build you up in strength in a way you never thought was possible, in a way you can't understand, but it happens. And then you can find the truth of these words of Jesus. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Truth in the words that God spoke to Paul. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Will you come to Jesus? Will you come to him with your pain? Will you come to him with your struggle? Will you come to him with your fear? Will you come to him with, 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 with the uncertainty that is boiling up inside of you and say, I need help, Jesus. I need that grace. I need to understand that your grace is enough. I need to understand that your grace is the only thing that will carry me through. The power of your grace will get me through today. I don't need to worry about tomorrow because tomorrow will worry about itself. Jesus said that also in the Sermon on the Mount. But I need to put all of my faith in the Lord and find his grace being enough for me. What is it you need to let go of? 
What is that pain? What is that struggle? What is that depth that you need healed? Will you bring it to Jesus and find his grace waiting for you? Will you bring it to Jesus and find satisfaction? You know, another word for that word satisfaction in the original language, contentment. The only way to find contentment is with Jesus because it's a spiritual state. Contentment's a spiritual state. You can't find it outside of Jesus. You can fake it and you can feel a certain way, um, but this peaceful happiness that is contentment, you can only find in Jesus. Will you find satisfaction today in Jesus? Find his grace today. Maybe that grace that you need to find is salvation. Maybe you need to come and say, I need to be saved. I need to believe that Jesus is God's son. That he died so all my sins would be forgiven. That he rose from the dead so I can live with him forever. Maybe you need to say, okay, today I need to make that decision and I need to believe in Jesus. If you do, in a minute, what's going to happen is I'm going to pray. They're going to sing a song and that will be your cue to come and, and say, I want to believe in Jesus. Come, I'll be standing right down here. You can talk to me. Maybe you need to come and say, hey, I need to be baptized. I need to show the world that I belong to Jesus. Public display of faith. Maybe you need to come and put your life in the church. Maybe you need to come and pray just down here at the steps and say, Jesus, I need your grace. <laughs> I need your power. As I walk through this moment, Jesus, I don't know how to hunger and thirst for your righteousness. I don't know how to find that spiritual satisfaction. So Jesus, I need your grace. Maybe that's what you need to come and pray. Maybe you're, the prayer you need to offer, maybe it's not for you, maybe it's for somebody else that they need to find Jesus. But I'm gonna pray for us. Whether you need to believe in Jesus, you need to be baptized, you need to come and pray, maybe you need to do all of them. Honestly, the baptistry's full. We forgot to turn it off, so it's still full and it's still warm. Maybe, you need to get, maybe there's a reason it's full today. You need to get baptized today because you've got some un, uh, uh, unresolved spiritual things that Jesus has been dealing with in your heart. Whatever your spiritual decision is today, let's make it. As soon as I say amen, that's your cue.